Miracy. You're also thinking about what is the emotional layer of how your participants are learning and then how are they taking action and applying the ideas. But I think what Steve highlighted is it's, it's actually that last piece, the behavioral piece, which is it, it's ultimately the most important, but it's also in some ways the most neglected and perhaps the hardest to fully think through and design and incorporate well into your courses, but has the biggest impact if you can do it. Hello, and welcome to Course Lab, the show that teaches creators like you how to make better online courses. I'm Danny Eaney, the founder and CEO of Miracy, and I'm here with my co-host, Abe Crystal, the co-founder of Rizuku. Hey, Danny. In each episode of Course Lab, we showcase a course and creator who is doing something really interesting, either with the architecture of their course or the business model behind it, or both. Today, we welcome Stever Robbins to the show. Stever is a coach, consultant, and teacher with a passion for understanding human behavior. Stever, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the 30,000-foot backstory. Who are you and what do you do and how did you come to be doing it? You know, take us through the winding path. I started life as an engineer back in the 1980s and was a total geek with no people skills, but I very much wanted people skills. So I was a technical star, and at one of my early jobs, I tried to get hired as a trainer. And they said, how ridiculous. You have no people skills and you have no experience doing that. And I said, no, but I am the best technical person you have. And I can come in with the technical skills and you teach me how to be a trainer and how to have people skills. And I'll be able to do some awesome things for you. And I actually, it worked. It was a winning strategy. I learned people skills and I also learned how to do course design. And I learned how to create learning experiences for people. That then sparked my curiosity as to how do you systematically teach people things. But in any event, I, I did that for, uh, for about a year. And then I went back to business school, went to Harvard Business School. And let's just say that I was a diversity admit. So they admitted me because I didn't have the standard background that everyone else did. And I graduated with a lot of very strong feels about that curriculum and what they taught and how they taught it. And not having great social skills, uh, better than I had originally had. But uh, I just decided to let them know that they weren't teaching the right things in the right ways. And I proceeded to send a series of faxes to one of my professors saying, dude, you're teaching the wrong stuff and you're teaching it the wrong ways. You really should shape up your act. He was later put in charge of redesigning the MBA program. And he called me up and he said, hey, would you like to take a 90% pay cut to come and help us redesign the curriculum and help create the next generation of Harvard MBAs? I said, wow, that's such a persuasive argument. How could I say no? And I then went and spent a couple years helping to redesign the curriculum, during which I read every bit of research I could find on how human beings learn, how they change behavior. I actually went around the world trying different business simulations and educational experiences and, you know, weird brain stuff. And that, you know, I would have to say, really, most of my life since then has been an elaboration and a deepening of that theme. So th there are few people who've done as deep a dive as you have into what works with education and what doesn't. Can you do a little bit of like, you know, column A versus column B? Everyone thinks X, but really it's Y. What are some of the common myths and truths of, of developing an effective educational experience? Sure. I think one of the big ones is that if people understand something, they'll be able to do it. There is a book, which I have never read, but I love the title, is The Knowing Doing Gap. And that really addresses what I think is 
an unbelievably pervasive theory of how people learn and how people change behavior, which is that if you tell people the learning, they will somehow magically be able to do the thing. And sometimes that's true, but a lot of times, in fact, the two are almost unrelated. You can know how to do something without ever having been instructed how to do it. You can just figure it out behaviorally. And on the flip side, you can know all of the theory. And then when you sit down and want to put it into practice, you can be utterly incapable of putting it into practice. And to me, in fact, the business leadership world is just an absolute exemplar of this whole principle, because people say things like, oh, don't treat your people like crap. Listen to their ideas. Treat them treat them well. And they've been saying this now for at least 40 years, I think, was, was probably one of the first management consulting books written about this. I, I think it was one of the Tom Peters books, maybe In Search of Excellence. And despite the fact that we have known this now for 40 years, no matter how many people read it, it still seems like many workplaces are characterized by incompetent managers who do more to hinder their people's ability to get things done than to help it. So that's one of the biggies, is that knowing and doing are actually two different things. One of the things that I got fascinated with really early in my career, because I read about someone who did this in a personal development series, is the idea of using misdirection, where you decide what you want to teach people, and what you do is you embed that in something else, and you get them all worked up about the something else, and they go ahead and learn the thing that you actually want them to learn uh, as, as part of whatever experience they're going through. And this way, you bypass all of their explicit resistance. So, for example, if I wanted to teach somebody to spell a bunch of words, and this is a slightly contrived example, instead of just saying, here's a bunch of words, memorize how to spell them, what I might do instead is give them a word list and say, now I want you to go through every word on this list and count the ratio of vowels to consonants. And then I want you to do that a whole bunch of times until you can just look at the word and almost instantly know what it is. Well, in the process of counting these vowels and consonants, I don't really care if they get the ratios right. But in order to get those ratios right, they're going to look at those words over and over and over and really study how they're spelled and notice where are the vowels and where are the consonants. And they're almost certainly going to walk away from that exercise size having memorized the spelling of those words, even though they had no awareness that that was the actual assignment. Whereas if I say memorize the spelling, they're going to go, oh, I'm bad at memorizing. Oh, I don't know if I can do it. Whatever. I'll actually just give them a task that presupposes the task that I really am concerned about them learning. Let's use a course. Let's say you're teaching. What, what's a? Give me a topic, and I'll I'll see if I can do this on the fly. Uh, how to manage stress. Okay. Let's say you're teaching someone how to manage stress, and you decide what you want to do is teach them how to do micro meditation. So when they feel stress, you want them to stop and take a couple deep breaths. You know, whatever. So. I would start by saying, you know, here we are, we're going to learn how to manage stress. We're going to learn how to manage stress by micro-meditation. And then I would imagine what are the actual steps that I want someone to go through by the time they're done with this program. So right now, somebody is at their computer. I'm going to just go ahead and use that as the context since we're all at our computers so much these days. Someone's at their computer and they're running late on a deadline or something is happening to cause them stress. Right now, all they do is work harder, tense their body up, and, and just basically increase the stress. That's their present state. The desired state, what I want them to be able to do after the program is done, is they're in front of their computer, they're working on, and they're missing a deadline, or they're up against a tight deadline, and I want them to stop and take a really deep breath and spend 10 seconds just relaxing and breathing in and out and focusing on their breath, and then go back to doing what they do. So what I'm going to do as the instructor is I'm going to identify those behaviors. And the behaviors there are are number one, recognizing that they need to do this. And that's something that I think often gets overlooked is if you want to give behavior change out of people, you have to teach them the trigger 
to when to do the new behavior. So in the course of stress, if I were teaching someone how to overcome stress, I would say, okay, first figure out where in your body you feel it, and that will become your trigger. So that will become the thing that you will train yourself to recognize that will kick in the new behavior, and you feel the trigger, and you kick in the new behavior, and the new behavior is to take a deep breath and to, to be present. That's at a very high level. I would probably break each one of those down and have a teaching module on each piece. So my first module would be, let's recognize how stress feels to you so that you know what it is that is causing the problem, and that is the thing you're going to use to recognize when to calm down. And then if what I want them to do is stop and breathe deeply, I might have a module on how to do deep breathing and say, right now, we're just going to learn how to breathe deeply because a lot of people don't know how to. They breathe deep, They think they're breathing deeply, but what they really do is just expanding their chest. They're not actually taking a diaphragm breath. So let's have a, a class on how to breathe deeply. Now, what we also want to do is teach you how to be present and how to be centered in your body, which is different from breathing deeply. We're going to have a little class on that. And now we're going to put all the pieces together. So in the next class, now, you know, pull out your, your book, find something that you're stressed about. And as soon as you feel that feeling in your body, now do the deep breathing piece that we talked about. Once you've done the deep breathing piece, now do the centering and now go and look at the thing again. And essentially, I would just have them practice that a whole bunch of times. And so, and, you know, like, like I said, at this point, all training to me comes down to that, identifying triggers and behaviors and just running the people through the behavior as many times as I can. And now... In the service of doing that, I might use films to give them some of the behaviors. I might use reading. I might use small group exercises and debriefing. But those are all just specific tactics. In terms of the instructional design, the main thing that I'm concentrating on is how can I get them in some fashion to engage in the behavior that I'm trying to teach them? Like the spelling example. How can I get somebody to look at a word and repeat it in their mind enough that it becomes a habit. And the answer is, well, if I tell them that's what I want them to do, they're going to obsess about it. And their obsessing is going to get in the way of it. But if I tell them to pay attention to the numbers of, of consonants and vowels, they will, in the course of doing that, look at the words over and over and over and probably end up memorizing them. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And how does that work if someone is teaching a larger scale online program where they are not necessarily having direct interaction with participants? How do they ensure that people are actually going out and running these behaviors as you describe? Well, I mean, right, in some deep philosophical sense, there's no way to guarantee it. But I am a big fan. I believe that people are accountable to each other, by and large, that the most powerful form of accountability is to know that someone else is depending on you and that you have their success in your hands. So I really like to do, I'm a huge fan of small group exercises. And in fact, just earlier today, I was taking a workshop and they brought in over Zoom and Zoom has a way to break people out into breakout rooms. And in fact, you can even do assigned breakout rooms if you're using a, if you have people pre-register. And I will have people go into breakout rooms and then act as, give, act as the feedback givers on each other. Now, it's an interesting thing because you're taking two people who are both learning a skill for the first time and asking them to give feedback. To each other. And so it's natural to say, well, wait a minute, how that does that make any sense? It's the blind leading the blind. There's two things about this that, that I find fascinating. One is people can often recognize proper behavior before they can do it themselves. So weirdly, you can have two inexperienced people give each other feedback, and they will actually give each other surprisingly good feedback, despite the fact they don't know anything about the, the problem domain. I have no idea how that works in the brain. But, you know, it reminds me of language, the way that you can understand a language long before you can speak it. 
and we seem to be able to understand what good performance is before we can actually execute it ourselves. So that's one piece. Another is, if necessary, I will teach people how to give each other feedback. So I'll say, you know, Danny and Abe, I want you to go into a small group, a small group, and I want Abe, I want you to walk Danny through the vowel and the consonant exercise. But Abe, you get the answer sheet. So Danny does the exercise, and then you, Abe, can say, oh, you got that right, you got that wrong. So to some degree, I can actually provide you the tools to give each other feedback. Obviously, that depends very much on what the exact skill is. And like, if I were teaching yoga over Zoom, which I might do during a pandemic, I might give people a PDF of this is what this yoga posture looks like properly done. Now, again, as I do this course, I will discover probably five minutes in, if you have a group of people who do not do yoga, they are not going to be able to do the poses properly because they're not flexible enough or they're not strong enough. But you as a yoga teacher know what it looks like when somebody is going up the learning curve. You know, if they do downward dog and they can't put their heels on the ground or they can't straighten their legs, you still know what good form looks like and what poor form looks like. So as an instructor, the, what I would do is I would not just provide diagrams of here's what the perfect pose looks like when it's done by a yogi master who's been doing it for 40 years. I would say, your partner is not going to be able to do this properly. Here's what it looks like when they're using good form, but they're only able to get halfway into the position. So I would actually teach people how to be, how to do the judging. Steve, the approach that you're describing, it's, uh, it's a little bit reminiscent of the early scenes in The Karate Kid where Daniel LaRusso is learning karate by, you know, painting the fence and wax on, wax off and all that kind of stuff. I hadn't even thought about that. Yes, it's exactly the same. So he's doing all those things and he develops the muscle memory and the skills. And of course, you know, there's the big reveal where it's like, you know, defend yourself, huh? And he can do it. But what brings that scene to a head is Daniel LaRusso being like, I don't like this process. I don't feel like I'm learning anything. I'm super frustrated, which for us as course creators is problematic. How do you lead people down this path where they're doing the things that they're learning, even though they don't realize that they're learning? Like, this is so different from what people expect in a learning experience that I can imagine people coming into a course, going through this, even though it's, it's better, but they're like, what the hell? This is not what I signed up for. I want my money back. Right. Well, that's a good question. And the answer is, whatever, this, whatever the misdirection is that I'm doing, I'm going to make the misdirection seem like the point so that they feel like they're getting the information. So I'm going to say, if you really want to learn how to spell words, you need to learn the differences between vowels and consonants. So we're going to do this exercise about vowels and consonants. So as far as the students are concerned, they're doing a step in learning how to spell words, except what they don't realize is I'm putting all of their attention on something that is not actually that meaningful a step because they're going to do the actual meaningful step as they do. So, so I mean, it really is misdirection. Very cool. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show and just sharing so generously and thoroughly about, about what you've learned over the years. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. The time really flew by. It was amazing. <laughs> Abe, you want to read us out? Yep. Steve Robbins is a serial entrepreneur and the founder of Steve Robbins, Inc. You can check out everything he has to offer over at steverobbins.com. That's steverobbins.com. Now stick around for my favorite part of the show, where Abe and I will pull out the best takeaways for you to apply to your course. Well, 
Well, Abe, this I feel like this whole interview was a conversation of best takeaways, but <laughs> what in particular jumped out to you? I guess the biggest theme is the idea of behavior-based design. And, you know, we sometimes talk, for example, about, you know, when you create your course, you should make sure to incorporate the no-feel-do approach and make sure you're not just delivering um, knowledge or information, but you're also thinking about what is the emotional layer of how your participants are learning and then how are they taking action and applying the ideas. But I think what Steve highlighted is it's, it's actually that last piece, the behavioral piece, which is it, it's ultimately the most important, but it's also in some ways the most neglected and perhaps the hardest to fully think through and design and incorporate well into your courses, but has the biggest impact if you can do it. Yeah, and, and that you've essentially got kind of the official curriculum and the surreptitious curriculum. And often a lot of the learning happens with that surreptitious curriculum of what's happening, you know, below the radar, underneath the surface, behind the scenes, mm-hmm. kind of keeping both of those in mind as you're, as you're designing. What, what do you mean by surreptitious? Like, for example, if I want you to learn the spelling, then, you know, that's what's happening. You know, the, the official curriculum is counting the syllables, but you're getting kind of a lot of it between the lines and learning to... Learning to just navigate that that balance of engineering experiences where people get to practice and execute the things that they need to practice and execute with feedback without the stress or emotional load or am I doing it right or, you know, basically sneaking in the learning in a lot of ways. Yeah. And my sense, too, is a lot of courses today are still structured around the model of here's a concept or theory that you need to understand as background and context. And then here's how you apply that in your situation and then implement this meditation or whatever it is. And it it seems like what may be the missing link there is like putting structures in place to help make sure people are actually doing that and getting the structure and feedback as they're doing it. So there's um, the running alongside someone who's learning to ride a bike analogy, if that's helpful or memorable, um, or just the like reflecting, you know, on your course and thinking about, okay, what am I doing to ensure that like people are actually going to do this meditation enough times to have an impact or that people, if I'm teaching people how to organize their inbox, that they're actually going to, you know, do the things that I show them how to do. And just going through that reflection, I think, could open up a lot of opportunities for people. Yeah, there's a very, um, you know, in, in a previous life, I used to do a lot of martial arts, which obviously are often based in, in Asian and Eastern uh, educational contexts. And there is often this East-West divide in teaching these things where the Western perspective is head first. Let me explain it to you. And once you understand it, you can start doing it. Whereas the Eastern approach, certainly in a martial arts context, is often very much the opposite. You don't need to understand this. Just you're here because I know this and you don't. So you do what I tell you and, you know, you'll develop the muscle memory and eventually you'll understand the theory and concept as well. But that's that's not where it begins. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's definitely a perspective that could be used more in in online courses. A lot of the ones we see anyway. Yeah, agreed. All right. Read us out. All right. Thank you for listening to Course Lab. I'm Abe Crystal, co-founder and CEO of Riziku, here with Danny Eaney, founder and CEO of Miracy. Course Lab is part of the Miracy FM podcast network. 
which also includes such shows as Making It and Once Upon a Business. This episode of Course Lab was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Governson assembled the episode. Danny Ean is our executive producer, post-production by Post Office Sound. Another big thanks to Stever for coming onto the show today. Remember, you can learn more about him over at steverrobbins.com. And to make sure you don't miss the excellent episodes coming up on Course Lab, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Did you enjoy today's show? If you did, go ahead and leave us a starred review. It really does make a difference. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. All right, are you ready? Wait, what's my cue? It's a behind the scenes kind of thing. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Just Between Coaches, the podcast that tackles difficult coaching conversations head on. I'm Melinda Cohen, and your host for this show. I also know that I'm listening when, again, my mind is relaxed. So I can almost sense that I'm listening on multiple levels. That's a great frame. That's a, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I think so, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that something that is very dangerous is for people to think that being a great coach comes from having the credentials. One has nothing to do with the other. So again, part of it is just you know, either through questions or asking what they've tried, or sometimes it's, you know, the forest for the trees thing. My favorite part of having the hard conversation is, ooh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. So while I love what's on the other side, I think navigating through that conversation is my favorite part. Yeah. Because we're not there necessarily as coaches to provide solutions. We're there to guide our people towards solutions. And, and I don't know if it's, you know, societal pressure or peer pressure, but we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. I want to help and support coaches so that they can evolve into their greatness. My desire for the show is if I could scoop up all of the coaches and bring them into my living room and bring up the topics that leave crinkles in our forehead so that we can fully understand what it means to show up in our greatness, fully confident so that we can build better businesses, so that we can be better coaches, so that we can make a lasting impact on this world collectively. And we want to rise to that level. That being said, you do want to set yourself up and your clients up for success by making sure that there is clarity around their expectations and your expectations as to how you can help them. People have to know a little bit about what you offer. Otherwise, how do they know that they need what you can help them with in terms of that transformation? And I love having the conversations and navigating the topics that keep us at the forefront in a time with what I call the results revolution. Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to start by saying that this is a really good problem to have, right? So if you have someone who's resisting your price, it means they're really interested in working with you. The thing is, sometimes it becomes negative. It becomes toxic. I've been in the coaching industry for almost 20 years now. 
And over these years, I have seen everything behind the scenes in our industry, everything that works, everything that doesn't work. I've seen the evolution of our industry and of what it means to be a coach. I just want to say to all the coaches out there, you know, matching who you are to the kind of coach that you want to be is just a practice. Do you want to add some parting words? No, I think you did great. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This is Melinda Cohen, and you've been listening to Just Between Coaches. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, this is absolutely the tone, the feel, the everything. Okay, so I'm going to stop the recording now. Why are you stopping the recording? This is going to be fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's a wrap. That is going to be an amazing session.